How did fun in the sun lead to murder? For almost two decades, the world has watched and waited for any sign of Natalie Holloway. Her disappearance is a mystery that continues to haunt us today. So let's talk about the twists, turns, and confessions in this bizarre and tragic case. Today's recap will leave your head spinning. I'm Amy, and this is True Crime Recaps. With her bags packed and her passport in hand, Natalie Holloway was looking forward to an unforgettable summer. As a high school honor student from Mountain Brook, Alabama, you might call Natalie a parent's dream. Outgoing, intelligent, she earned herself a full scholarship to the University of Alabama with an eye toward adding doctor to her name. And most of all, the 18-year-old was responsible. So when she asked her parents for permission to celebrate her high school graduation by going out on a school-sponsored trip to the tiny Caribbean island of Aruba, they didn't blink an eye before saying yes. After all, it wasn't like she was going alone. There were 122 other classmates and seven chaperones along with her. It looked like an amazing trip. Here's what didn't make it into the brochure. In the early 2000s, the Aruba Travel and Tourism Board made a very clever marketing move. Since the legal drinking and gambling age on the island is 18, Why not market the place as the celebration destination of choice for high school grads and college students? The kind of tourists who drank a lot, partied a lot, and kept the island's many restaurants, bars, and hotels doing a lucrative business. But there was something else, something much more ominous, that was in the seedy underbelly of this party destination. A date rape drug was making its way around the island. GHB. It doesn't smell, it doesn't have any noticeable taste, and it comes in liquid or powder form. Slip some into a drink, and 20 minutes later, your target becomes very open to suggestions. In fact, some of the bartenders on the island might even help dose a drink for an extra $25 or $50, according to a statement Natalie's father made to the Oxygen Network as part of their documentary series on this case called The Disappearance of Natalie Holloway. A lot of the information you're going to hear today came from that investigation. Aruba should have been Natalie's time of her life, and it almost was. It was Saturday, May 28th, 2005, the second to last day of their vacation. Natalie and her group of friends spent it the way they had all the others. Fun in the sun, nights gambling at the Excelsior Casino attached to the Holiday Inn where they were staying, then dancing the night away at a club. But on that night, a smooth-talking stranger sat down at the same blackjack table where Natalie and her friends were playing. It didn't take long for him to introduce himself to the pretty Americans. His name was Joran Vandersloot. The 18-year-old was born in the Netherlands but grew up in Orgenstad as the well-known son of a soon-to-be judge in a prominent family. He was a smooth-talking, wild kid with a gambling problem and a knack for picking up American tourists since he was fluent in English. Former friends of his described him as the type who got a lot of sex, and it didn't much matter to him if the girl was conscious or not. And if the encounter was secretly recorded, well, that was even better. Sunday, May 29th, was the last day on the island. Flights home were booked for Monday morning. Natalie and her friends wanted to make the most of their remaining hours. Her close friend and hotel roommate, Ruth, told the New York Post a few of them went to a Boys to Men Lauren Hill concert on Surfside Beach late that afternoon. 
After that, it was the usual, gambling, then clubbing at Carlos and Charlie's, popular hotspot for tourists. Around midnight, Natalie spotted a familiar face in the crowded bar. You're on. Ruth told the Post she thought it was strange to see him there. They'd seen him around the casino a lot, just the day before, in fact, but he told them Sunday nights were kind of a drag. You know, not a lot of people out, you know. But there he was, buying drinks and keeping Natalie on the dance floor until last call around 1.30 a.m. on Monday, May 30th. When the place started shutting down, another friend, Jessica, told the Oxygen Channel she and Natalie and some of the other girls wanted to grab food from a street vendor while they waited for the shuttle back to the hotel. She remembers turning around to see Natalie driving away in a car with Yaron and two of his friends, brothers Satish and Deepak Kalpo, 18 and 21 years old. People.com quoted Jessica's reaction like this, quote, the window was down so we could see it was her in the back of the car. My impression was, oh, great, she found a ride back to the hotel. Other friends say they tried to stop her. Natalie would never take off with people we didn't know. She was my most responsible friend ever. That's what Ruth said in an interview with The Post only months after the disappearance. When she woke up later that morning, she was surprised Natalie wasn't in the room, but she wasn't worried. Not yet, anyway. We thought she slept in another room so as not to wake us up, she told The Post. We thought she was being polite. Natalie's bags were packed, her passport was there, but as the clock ticked by, her friends started to get a funny feeling. Something was very wrong. We started walking down the halls, knocking on all the doors, she said. We told the chaperone, there's a problem, she's not here. Exactly what happened to Natalie Holloway after she got in that car remains a mystery to this day. In January of 2012, she was declared legally dead. Now, there are theories upon theories about what really happened in this case, and there was also a confession by her suspected killer and his alleged accomplice. More than one, actually. But in Aruba, a confession and $5 will buy you a beer. It doesn't mean anything if there's no forensic evidence. Of course, it doesn't mean it's not true. I want to take you through the most shocking revelations, and by the end, you might have some idea of what really happened, or you might... Just think this is a tangled, tangled mess that might never be solved. First up, the truth about what happened to Natalie, according to Euron's first secretly recorded confession in 2008. Now, quick backstory here. Three months after she went missing in May 2005, Euron moved back to his native Netherlands to study business at a local university. He was gambling in a casino, surprise, surprise, when he met a stranger named Patrick Vanderium. I'll let you watch ABC's 2020, The Final Hours of Natalie Holloway, to get the details, but suffice it to say that Patrick was familiar with the case. And like most of the world, he believed Yaron was guilty of something horrific. So he decided to go undercover as a friend in hopes of learning the truth. To help him pull off such an elaborate long con, he got help from Dutch crime reporter Peter R. DeVries. He set him up with a Range Rover equipped like a recording studio. There were hidden cameras, sound recording devices, and a GPS tracking system. The sting was on. Over the course of months, Patrick played Euron like a fiddle, taking advantage of his addictions to drugs, gambling, and women to gain his trust. Then in January 2008, after being re-arrested, then re-released by the Aruban police, Euron started talking, and this is what he had to say. When the three guys and Natalie drove away from Carlos and Charlie's, 
Yaron said he tried to convince Natalie they should go back to her hotel room so they could hook up. But even in her condition, whatever that might have been exactly, she knew at least one of her friends was asleep in the room, so that was a no-go. Besides, she told him she wanted to see sharks, which meant the beach. So the Calpole brothers dropped them off at the access road next to the Marriott, which led to Moomba Beach. When they got to the sand, they started making out and other stuff, but it didn't go too far before she started violently shaking as if she was having a seizure. In Neuron's story to Patrick, he admitted he was scared, freaking out, and pissed that, of course, something like that would happen to him. Narcissistic jackass. He figured she overdosed, and regardless of why or how, she was dead. His next problem was how to get rid of her body. So why he didn't call for help, explain it was an accident, or heck, even just leave her body on the beach... Who knows? But in this version of the story, he claimed he picked up a payphone and called someone to help him get rid of her. Someone he said he'd known since childhood that owed him, a guy named Jory. And most importantly, Yaron claimed Dory had a boat. Now, together, they loaded her body into it, and Yaron walked home and sent some emails to establish an alibi while his friend sailed into the sea and tossed Natalie overboard as a favor to him. Sounds plausible, right? Could have happened. Except it didn't. At least not all of it. Dory, the man Euron so easily threw under the bus, was a former soccer player on Euron's high school team. But according to him, the two of them were barely friends. Certainly not the kind of pals you would rely on to help you hide a body. And furthermore, Dory wasn't even on the island of Aruba in the months before or after Natalie disappeared. Witnesses, receipts, and security videos put him in Rotterdam, Holland at the time. So why did Euron use his name in this supposed confession? Well, possibly because he'd just seen the man for the first time in years at a casino a few weeks earlier. His name must have just come to mind as he was talking. I mentioned Euron is a pathological liar, right? When the rest of the world heard this secret confession, he denied everything. Of course, he claimed he was just trying to impress Patrick and tell him a story he knew he wanted to hear. The last he saw of Natalie, Euron claimed, she was sitting on a beach, alive and well. Now, you're going to hear Euron's original story, the one he told in May of 2005. But before we go back, we need to go forward nine years from the 2008 secret recorded confession to another version secretly recorded in 2017. Now, this comes to you courtesy of an alleged accomplice named John Ludwig. Well, it's actually thanks to John's roommate at the time, a guy named Gabriel, who told Natalie's father, who told his private detective, who told the Oxygen Channel, who helped them put together yet another sting. But this time with John as the target. So the details of this undercover operation can be seen on Oxygen's series, The Disappearance of Natalie Holloway. So credit given, backstory explained. Let's jump in. According to John Ludwig, what you're about to hear is really, really what happened to Natalie. The Calpole brothers dropped Euron and Natalie off at the Marriott Hotel Access Road so they could walk down to Moomba Beach. On the way, Euron told John he stopped at the Marriott pool bar to buy the two of them another drink. As they were hooking up on the sand, she started to shake and froth at the mouth. He freaked out. He didn't know what to do. So he let her choke to death on her own vomit without even rolling her onto her side. It was sometime around 3 a.m., but he went to a payphone and called his father for help. When dad got there, he had a burlap sack with him. 
Together, they broke her limbs and folded her body so she would fit inside. The spot where they ultimately chose to bury her is the aspect of this particular story that changes a lot. So John's first version put her in a shallow grave in the National Forest, marked only by a cactus to cover the disturbed earth. Another version puts her body in a grave marked by a grove of trees and a rock formation at the end of a dead-end street in a quiet residential neighborhood in the hills, a spot you're on might have been familiar with as sort of an out-of-the-way place to take a girl. Now, John knows where that spot was because when he met Euron in Aruba in 2010, the guys became close friends, possibly even lovers off and on. And then one day when John was good and hooked on heroin and in need of some cash, he says Euron called him up and offered him a chance to make $1,500. All he had to do was dig up the body of Natalie Holloway and get rid of her for good. Now, bear with me, because from here, John's story changes a bit here and there. So first, he claimed Euron drew him a map and X marked the spot where he would find the body wrapped in the burlap bag and a blue tarp. From there, he was to take it to a local crematorium where Euron's father had some pull. The plan was to tell the staff that he wanted to cremate the body of his dog. And for some under-the-table cash, he wanted to be the one to push the body into the incinerator. For good measure, in case anyone decided to get curious, he says Euron dug up the body of his family dog and put its bones in the bag on top of Natalie's. $200 in cash later, and John claimed the deed was done. He and Euron dumped her ashes into the sea sometime later, forever destroying any chance she may have had to be buried at home in Alabama. But another version of John's story is even more disturbing. Yeah, that is possible. In the extended version, he claims Euron went with him to dig up her body, so there was no need for a map. And when they found her bones, he says they removed her skull and burned it, so any remaining blonde hair would be destroyed. He said they crushed the rest of her bones so they wouldn't be recognizable as human. And then they mixed the dog's bones among them, and John took them to the crematorium. However, in this version, her ashes weren't dropped into the sea. John said he gave the bag of her ashes to Euron, and he doesn't know what he did with them. But he said he kept a few of the bones for himself as insurance should he ever need leverage against Euron. He said he buried them in his aunt's yard. And she was an expat who owned and rented some properties on Aruba. And at the time, John and Euron were getting close. He was living in her house and doing some work for her, a decision I'm sure the poor woman regrets to this day. But as part of the Oxygen series in mid-2017, away from the authorities with only a cell phone camera recording, John and his confidant, Gabriel, dug up those bone fragments he claimed he saved. So... Were they Natalie's last remains, proof that John's confession was real and Euron could actually have to answer for her murder? Long story short, no, not really. Three of the four fragments were from an unidentified animal, but one was human and from a Caucasian person, but it wasn't Natalie. According to a YouTube video Gabriel made months later, he admitted that he knew the bone fragments weren't going to be a match to her, and he believed Natalie's ashes were actually disposed of in the ocean, as John originally claimed. But talk about an emotional roller coaster for her family. Her mother, Beth, actually sued the Oxygen Network because of this. She was asked to provide a DNA sample to compare to the remains they found when, from her perspective, the producers already knew that there wouldn't be a match, but who knows? Regardless of who knew what, whose bone was that? 
I don't want to confuse you by veering away from Natalie's story, which is far from over, but that human bone has a story of its own and it deserves to be told. Am I right? So here's Chris for a quick mini recap of the story of another woman who went missing under somewhat similar circumstances and from the same Aruban town six years later on August 2nd, 2011. Her name was Robin Gardner. Since the human bone that somehow found its way into the hands of John Ludwig was not connected to Natalie Holloway, the police were forced to ask the question, if not her, then who? Their best guess was 35-year-old Robin Gardner, who was traveling with a 50-year-old man she met online only a month or two earlier named Gary Giordano. And here's an eyebrow-raising factoid. Two days before the trip, Gary took out a $1.5 million accidental death policy on Robin. They were in Aruba for only a few days when she mysteriously went missing. He told police they were snorkeling when she was suddenly swept away with the current. Now, a short time before that, around 4 p.m., they were eating and drinking at a restaurant called the Rum Reef Bar and Grill. Their server remembered them well because Gary was acting so strange. For example, when he walked up to take their order, Gary stood up and introduced himself and Robin and told the man they were visiting from Maryland. He felt it was odd. He also thought it was strange to hear the couple went snorkeling right afterwards because Robin was all done up with the hair and the makeup and the dress, and her look didn't exactly say, I'm jumping into the water after this. But two hours later, there's Gary on security video shirtless, but with his toupee still firmly in place. Now, the police thought it was very strange that he managed to keep his hair on while battling current strong enough to kill the person next to you. I mean, that's some kind of glue. But okay, let's go with it, since that's what the police in Aruba did. He swore he was innocent of any wrongdoing, but an anonymous tipster claimed he saw him use a plastic bag and duct tape to suffocate Robin and tie her up before burying her in a shallow grave on a beach known as a sort of pet cemetery appropriately called Dog Graves Beach. Now, hold on, because this is where Robin's story connects to Natalie's. Rumors and theories say that Natalie wasn't buried in the National Forest or in a lonely wooded area at the end of a residential neighborhood at all. Some claim she was buried in a dog's grave in the beachside pet cemetery. Now, to back that claim up, Dave Holloway claims in the early days of her disappearance, as the search party came close to that area, the Aruban police were also there, but not to help with the search. He speculated that they were there to pick something up that they didn't want found. And not so coincidentally, the former police commander was a close, personal friend of Euron's family. And Robin's case is just as frustrating and disappointing. Three days after she disappeared, Gary did a couple of very suspicious things. He tried to claim the millions in life insurance on her, and he attempted to leave the country. He was stopped at the airport and held for a couple of months, but without the evidence they needed to hold him, he was released, and he left for Maryland that very same day. Now, what about that bone fragment? Was it Robin's? In October 2017, the Huffington Post said her sister offered her DNA as a comparison sample, but there doesn't seem to be any further information about the results. So we can reasonably assume that Robin is still missing and whose bone that was is still a mystery. Now, before Amy comes back with the rest of the Natalie Holloway story, I have an interesting fact for you about Euron's alleged accomplice, John Ludwig. 
Natalie's father called him a perverted, sick guy, and he wasn't wrong. A year after he gave the confession Amy recapped for you, John was stabbed to death with his own knife by a woman he was trying to kidnap in Florida. And in case you were wondering, Yaron can be ruled out as a suspect in Robin's disappearance since he was already in a Peruvian prison serving time for another murder. But I don't want to jump too far ahead. So here's Amy to finish telling you about the Natalie Holloway case. So now that you know a little bit more about where Natalie's case went after she disappeared, this is a good time to go back to the beginning so you get a better idea about what happened right after she went missing. With no sign of her at the Holiday Inn on May 30th, 2005, the school group she was traveling with had no choice but to take their flight home. They called her mother, Beth, from the airport. As their flight took off, her parents were booking their own flights in. At first, the Aruban police didn't take it too seriously. Young, attractive tourists were known to end up in strange beds or show up hours or even a day or two later, a little sheepish, but none the worse for wear. But they knew their daughter. She wouldn't have missed her flight home. They demanded answers from the guys her daughter's friends said she'd left with. So when police pulled up to the gates of Yoran's family mansion, the Honda Natalie was last seen driving away in was parked out front. Yoran and Deepak were standing next to it in the driveway. With her parents two minutes away from throttling him, the boy's first story was they took her to California Lighthouse near Arashi Beach so she could look for sharks. Then they took her back to the hotel at around 2 a.m. When they demanded to see where exactly he left her, he guided them to the front door of the hotel, the Holiday Inn, and he embellished the story even more. In this enhanced version, he said Natalie stumbled and hit her head getting out of the car, and two of the hotel's security guards came over to help. He claimed he was innocent, but those mysterious security guards, they might have something to answer for. Mm-hmm. Clearly, Yaron was comfortable with throwing complete strangers under the bus from the get-go. Police did arrest two security guards, but they were cleared and released. Yaron, the Kalpo brothers, and Yaron's father were also arrested that summer, but by September of 2005, they were all released with various, often conflicting stories about where they were the night it happened. Now, here's where the story gets even stranger. A week after her disappearance, another man came forward to corroborate Yaron's first story. A local DJ said he saw the Honda drop Natalie off in front of the Holiday Inn, according to a documentary on the case by Journeyman Pictures called Exposing the Truth About the Natalie Holloway Murder Mystery. But surveillance footage proved Yaron and the DJ were lying. After leaving the club with him, Natalie was never seen at her hotel again. So why would this person come forward and insert himself into such a high-profile case, especially with a story that could be so easily proven wrong? And he didn't stop there. When asked where he was the night she disappeared, he gave a fake alibi. He said he was working on a party boat that night, and in the early morning hours— specifically the hours when she was last seen, he said he was asleep on that same boat. But according to the Journeyman Pictures research into the police files, his boss claimed that wasn't true. This DJ was off that night and the lies kept piling up. He said he was out partying, but he didn't go to Carlos and Charlie's. However, the staff does remember him being there around 10 p.m. and pictures taken that night prove it. Then he said he was partying until about 5 a.m. before going to sleep on that party boat. But the bars closed at 2 a.m. So if he couldn't truthfully account for his whereabouts between 2-ish and 5-ish, where exactly was he and what was he doing when Natalie disappeared during that time period? 
Why all the lies? Could this DJ be the person Euron actually called to help him dispose of her body? The FBI wondered the same thing, but the Aruban police just called him an unreliable witness and released him. He's not an official suspect. Unfortunately, there was no way to prove any other connection to her disappearance because the Aruban police waited three weeks to pull security footage from businesses around the island, which is about the size of Brooklyn. Most of the security cameras were set to save footage for about two weeks only. Coincidence? And then there's yet another bizarre twist in Natalie's case. According to the police records, again obtained by Journeyman Pictures, her hotel room door was opened with her key multiple times between 2 and 4 a.m., the exact same time she allegedly accidentally died of an overdose with Euron on the beach. So who was using that key to open her door? Did Euron and his alleged accomplice, whoever that might be, consider putting her body back into her own bed to try and make it look like she died in her own room? Or was the key issued to her accidentally switched with one of her roommate's keys? We don't know the answer to that because the other girls were never asked about it and their cards were never checked to learn when they were used. And there were no security cameras in the hallways. In September 2005, Euron admitted on television that he and the brothers agreed to lie to the police about dropping her off at the hotel. The truth was, he said, they left her alive and well sitting on the beach. Yeah. It took two more years for the Aruban police to arrest the three of them again in November 2007, this time for involuntary manslaughter of Natalie. But they were held for less than a month before being released again that December and the case was closed. Although they did begrudgingly reopen it in 2008 after they heard that shocking secret confession that we talked about earlier. But no charges were ever pressed due to the continued lack of evidence. Since Euron was free to go, he did. He went all the way to Thailand and adopted a new identity, one Murphy Jenkins, modeling agency production consultant. He used this fake persona to convince girls he was going to turn them into European models, but he was actually recruiting for a Thai sex slave gang, and one of the would-be models disappeared without a trace. According to CBS News, we can add Thailand to the list of countries pursuing criminal charges against Euron. And the list gets longer. In 2010, his mental state, always unbalanced, seemed to completely fall apart, starting with the death of his father in February of 2010. After spending most of the family's money defending his son, losing his reputation, and doing some time behind bars himself, the man had a heart attack on the tennis court and died at age 57. Maybe that's why Euron felt he had to allegedly turn to John Ludwig to help him allegedly dispose of Natalie's body again, assuming his first partner in crime was allegedly his father. Interestingly, if you've been following the current developments in the Kristen Smart case, you might see some connections there. But then Euron had another bright idea. Since he was lying nonstop anyway, he decided to extort $250,000 from Natalie's mother by dangling the hope of information in front of her. I really, I hate this guy. I hate him. At the end of March in 2010, he gave her an offer he figured she couldn't refuse. If she wired him a down payment of 25 grand, he said he'd tell her what happened to Natalie and where she was. So Beth went to the FBI, who instructed her lawyer to string him along while they set up a third sting operation, but this time working in tandem with the Aruban police. It started with a $100 payment. 
By May, they'd given him $10,000 in cash. Weeks later, they transferred $15,000 more to a bank in the Netherlands. In exchange, he said his father hid her body under a house he owned as an income property. Yeah, the only thing was that house didn't exist when Natalie disappeared. I mean, they searched anyway, of course, but came up empty-handed and $25,000 poorer. He allegedly said he did it, the extortion scheme, to punish them for pressuring him about Natalie since 2005. He used the money he extorted from her mother to flee to Peru and join a poker tournament. On May 30th, 2010, five years to the day after Natalie disappeared, 21-year-old Stephanie Flores was brutally beaten to death with a tennis racket in his hotel room in Lima. Steph had seen Yaron leave in a hurry early that morning, and he never came back. It was three days before they went into the room since he'd supposed to have checked out by then, and that's when they found her broken body and the TV was still on. Stephanie was studying business at the University of Lima. She was the daughter of a prominent businessman who had run for president in 2006. An investigation revealed eerily similar circumstances to Natalie. Security video showed Yaron meeting Stephanie at a casino connected to his hotel, and they were seen going up to his room together. Her father told the media later that date rape drugs didn't specify what kind, were found in her car, and it appeared she'd been robbed of her jewelry, cash, and credit cards to the tune of about $11,000. He used the stolen goods to change his appearance and flee to Chile, where he was hoping to avoid arrest yet again. But not this time. The evidence against him was overwhelming, and he was extradited back to Peru to stand trial. So why did he do it? He claimed the stress of the Natalie Holloway investigation drove him to murder. He said Stephanie recognized him when they got to the room and confronted him about his role in Natalie's disappearance, and he snapped. He pled guilty and claimed he wanted to confess from the beginning. Yeah, right. Or maybe he ran out of friends or family to clean up his dirty work, and he had no choice but to leave the body and run. Others say his guilty plea was just a transparent move to get less jail time. And if it was, it didn't work. He got 28 years in a Peruvian prison. And after he was arrested for Stephanie's murder, Natalie's mother went to the prison to plead with him to tell her what happened to her daughter, the truth this time. She begged him to get it off his chest. She told him she would forgive him, God would forgive him, but she just needed to know. But he wouldn't do it. He told her he might write to her, and also that anything that may or may not have happened was a result of his gambling addiction. Yeah, I doubt Beth Holloway ever got that letter. But he doesn't appear to be suffering too much. He got married in 2014. And in yet another hidden camera interview in 2016, Yaron can be seen holding hands with his pregnant wife while he mocks the Aruban investigation and admits that he lied over and over to Aruban police, hinting they were too dumb to ask the right questions. In that interview, he says he was guilty in that case and takes responsibility for what he did, although doesn't really offer any details about what that might have been or where Natalie's body might be. He also claimed he wrote a 500-page tell-all book behind bars that almost, but not quite, names the real killers. So I guess on the other hand, he decided not to take responsibility for that after all. In this book, he says he wrote... The real killers are underworld types associated with international gambling, but it hasn't been published yet because he's holding out for more money to support his wife and, ironically, his little girl. 
If and when he makes it out of Peru in one piece, he'll be taking a government-sponsored trip to Alabama to serve his sentence for extorting Natalie's mother out of those thousands of dollars. And when the Deep South is done with him, and good luck to you, buddy, Thailand is waiting in line to bring him to trial for allegations of sex trafficking. As far as the other theories surrounding Natalie's disappearance go, there are a few standouts we should cover. The most prevalent among citizen sleuths is that she was sold to sex traffickers. Yuran was allegedly working with that gang of traffickers in Thailand, and he even told various people that he sold Natalie to a similar gang operating out of Aruba. Of course, again, the guy's a pathological liar. It's who knows. But other tips her parents have chased over the years include sightings of a skeleton on the ocean floor a few miles from the shore and tips to check out a variety of different makeshift graves around the beach, including the pet cemetery. And none of these leads have led to the discovery of their daughter's body. But they did find a jawbone on the beach and duct tape with long blonde hair sticking to it. So, number one, dear God, what goes on over there? And number two, I hope they check those against the missing Robin Gardner. But in any case, they weren't Natalie. This case just continues to be frustrating, disappointing, and bizarre. Now, before I let you go, I have a strange factoid, and here it is. At one point, Beth Holloway was dating John Ramsey, father of John Bonet. He called their relationship a friendship of respect and admiration. And yeah, okay, I suppose they certainly did have a lot in common when it came to their kids. Sad, tragic things in common. But these days, Beth spends her time as a speaker, warning others about the dangers that come with travel and helping other parents learn how they can keep themselves and their children safe. She also runs a charity named after her daughter, lending her hard-earned expertise to other parents of missing children. And that is your recap. If you like getting twice the crime in half the time, it would mean so much to Chris and I if you would take a second to subscribe and leave us a five-star review and comment. It does take a minute, but it means the world to us. Chris and I are here every Wednesday with a new recap. And until then, take care.